title of the sermon this morning, Compartmentalized Faith. Sometimes when we think about faith, uh, we consider it in, in light of those that have it and those that don't. You've got faith, you don't have faith. But as we look in Scripture, we find that, that faith is a little bit more, if I can use the word, dynamic than that. Uh, faith is something that we certainly have unto salvation, but faith is something that we will spend uh, our entire lives learning about and growing in and understanding. Uh, there is faith in God, and then there's faith in what God can do. And as we consider these concepts of faith, having our hope in God, we understand that um, hope is something that we need to be renewed in. David was no stranger to the reality of needing to hope in God, of the uh, lessons that are learned that God is in control. In fact, in Psalm 42 verse 5, David says this, why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the, for the help excuse me, of his countenance. In the midst of trouble and in the midst of despair, David uplifts his soul, reminding himself that his hope is not in people, his hope is not in wealth, his hope is not in power, his hope, his expectation, his faith is in God. Psalm 42 is a psalm written, the scriptures tell us, for the sons of Korah. Now the sons of Korah would have been the surviving relatives of, if you remember the events of Numbers 27, the surviving relatives of that man and his family who believed that they could all be priests before God and so sought to um, usurp the priesthood, the high priesthood from Aaron and from his family. Those sons of Korah, those that were survived from that terrible event in Numbers 27, became singers in the temple, the scriptures tell us. And all of this to say that it was very likely that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 42, for them to sing when he was already king. So as David is king in Psalm 42 and he reflects upon his life and he reflects upon what he's learned, he writes these words, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. David is looking to the Lord for hope in the midst of his trials. But as we've learned from the book of 1 Samuel, it hasn't always been that way, has it? David hasn't always been a, a consistent rock of faith and of hope in God. We have seen David, in a fit of panic, lie to the high priest Ahimelech on one occasion. And in doing so, not only occasion the death of Ahimelech, but also occasion the death of all in his household. And today we see another instance of a lapse in faith in which David will be placed in a very difficult situation. And really he places himself here by virtue of his poor choices. And as we consider this, far be it from me to, to seek to um, spurn David's character. We know him to be a great man of God. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But from it, we will, Lord willing, learn how we can respond in the midst of our own troubles. And in the midst of our own circumstances where we are faced with decisions as to whether or not we and our souls are going to hope in God or whether we're going to seek for a solution in our own right. So our text opens today, and it opens directly with the problem. In verse 1, we read, we read this. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in the, any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. Several things are happening here, and I'd like to consider them in turn. First, we find that David despairs of, really, he despairs of God's plan here. He despairs of Saul and being chased by Saul, but he despairs of God's plan. We might describe David as kind of 
hitting a breaking point in this passage. We don't know exactly how long David had been on the run from Saul at this point. We know it was long enough for him to talk to the high priest, to go to the Philistines' land, to come back out of the, uh, of the land of the Philistines, to get his mighty men, for Saul to fight a battle against the Amalekites, for uh, David to uh, run during that time, for David to interact with Nabal, for David to take Abigail to his wife. All of these things have happened, and we've seen all of those things happen. So it has been some time. And David is no doubt tired. He's getting weary of running. And though David's faith has taken him to great heights of integrity, it still had its limits, and today we're going to see one of those limits. David regularly acted in faith when he understood what God wanted from him. But today he shows a lack of faith because of a lack of understanding of all that that God had in store. Sure, David was ready to trust the Lord in not killing Saul. And remember, there have been two instances in the past several weeks as we've looked at 1 Samuel where David has had the explicit opportunity to kill Saul. And both times his men said, do it, kill him. This is the Lord delivering him into your hand. And David said, no, I'm going to trust the word of the Lord. I'm going to trust what I know God has said. God has said that no man touches the Lord's anointed. Saul is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to kill him. David could do that. Even when he had the chance, he was going to trust the Lord. With a little bit of encouragement, David was even willing to trust the Lord in his vindication of Nabal. He was going to destroy Nabal and all of his family when Abigail confronted him and very respectfully said, don't do it. You'll regret it. And David said, blessed be thou of the Lord who had stopped me this day from doing this thing. He trusts the Lord to vindicate him, and in fact, in 10 days, Nabal is dead. But today we see, though David was willing to trust the Lord with Saul's life, and David was willing to trust the Lord with Nabal's life, he he comes to despair of his own life. And his faith is not yet in a place where he is able to trust God and stay the course. Say, Pastor, is that really it? I mean, are you just trying to draw something out here, David's? such a godly man that you've just got to find something to kick him in the shin with? Well, no. It is a faith issue. And I think you'll agree with me when you consider why. Back in chapter 22, recall David had planned to stay in the hold in Moab. This is right after he he left the Philistines. He went and he hid in a cave. All of the riffraff from the the land came to him and from the other uh, lands, the Hittites and and such. We know he had uh, other nationalities with him as well. They come to him and the scriptures tell us his family comes to him as well. And he ends up in Moab and he leaves his family with the king of Moab for protection while he's running from Saul. And the scriptures tell us that he stayed in the hold in Moab until the prophet Gad came to him, if you remember, and said, no, the Lord does not want you here in Moab. He wants you in Israel. Go back to Israel. And he obeys. He does what he's told. He returns to the land of Israel. And this is much against the wishes of those who are following him. They're putting themselves in harm's way by being in Israel. And it appears that the reason why God wanted David there was so that David could be seen of the people, he could protect the people, and generally build a good rapport among the people. Recall he saved those in Keilah, that city that was being destroyed by the Philistines. And he went and he delivered that city out of the hands of the Philistines. Saul went to chase him, he left the city, but he delivered that city from their enemies. Uh, He protected Nabal and Nabal's flocks. Now Nabal was uh, unkind to him in return, and and we we talked about that account. But David had protected Nabal's flocks from from raiders and and from animals. David in Israel means that he is forming a good mind share, if you will. The people see David as a hero. They see him as a leader. They know that David is innocent. They know that he is doing right. They know that Saul is in the wrong. And so there will come a time when Saul will either be deposed or he will die and David will have the full support of the nation of Israel because he's been in Israel doing the work. Now we also know that just last chapter, chapter 26, as David spoke with Saul, he verbally cursed the wicked men influencing Saul causing him to chase David, and he said, thus driving David as a child of Israel from God's inheritance and from God's tabernacle. 
Remember, David told Saul, look, if I'm in the wrong here, then, then let me come and we'll go to the temple tabernacle and we'll, we'll give our offerings and we'll make this right. But if there are wicked men, Saul, that are influencing you, if it's not the Lord, if it's wicked men influencing you to chase me, then curse them because they are keeping me away from the Lord's inheritance. They are keeping me away from Israel. So in chapter 26, we find that David knows this very well, just how important it is within the scope of God's plan and God's economy that David be in Israel, that he's not in a pagan land. So we can confidently say that David's thoughts here as he's thinking through this to flee Israel uh, lest he be destroyed by Saul is a failure of faith as he despairs of God's plan for him. And we continue... Uh, Matt, this will be the next slide. I've got some notes there at the bottom, but let's uh, go to the next slide. As we continue here, uh, we see firstly that, that David despaired of God's plan, but second, he, he then begins to rationalize his own plan. He, he, he takes matters into his own hands here. He says, I'm convinced I'm going to die. If I may put it in unfortunately secular terms, he kind of says it this way. Saul has missed me up to this point, but at some point my luck is going to run out. So I need to get out of Israel before Saul finally gets around to killing me. It seems that uh, David forgot for maybe just a moment that his success thus far was not an extension of his own capacity, nor was it an an extension of, of his luck. It was God's providential provision. He was where God wanted him to be, and in the midst of where he was supposed to be, God was taking care of him. So in fact, no, David, you won't die if you stay in the land of Israel. You won't perish at the hand of Saul as long as you stick to God's plan. But David says rather that he can think of no better option than to escape into the land of the Philistines. He says in, this, in doing this, Saul will despair of looking for him. He'll look in all of Israel. He'll not find me. He'll give up. And this is David's grand plan to get himself out of trouble. He tried following God's plan. God's plan had worked as far as it went. David is still alive, but he hasn't gotten any closer to the throne. And he's tired. And since David has firmly determined that he will not kill Saul, he sees no other option than simply to run away himself, to live among the Philistines, excuse me, and wait out Saul's inevitable decline. So David's got a plan. But it's built on his own rationale, not faith. But it is a plan, and his plan is going to cost him. It's going to work. He's not going to die. But it is going to cost him. And thirdly, within this verse, within verse 1, uh, we, we also need to see what's missing. And I've mentioned it throughout the first two uh, considerations. But, but what is missing here? David went back to Israel from Moab because God told him to. David rescued Keilah because God told him to. David didn't kill Saul because God didn't want him to. But what we find missing from this verse as it concerns David is God. He doesn't say, Gad, come over here, let me inquire of the Lord as to what the Lord would have me to do now. He doesn't say to um, Abiathar, the young priest who uh, had been spared from the slaughter of Ahimelech and his family, Abiathar, bring over here the ephod so that I can inquire of the Lord. He simply says in his heart, if I stay here, I'm going to die. So I'm just going to go. God never, uh, David never asks God. He rationalizes and then he acts. Now we read in verses 2 and 3, And David arose and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. Now, this is the very same Achish that we, Achish of Gath, that we remember back in 1 Samuel 21. This is the same Achish that David fled to the first time he was fleeing from Saul. Right at the beginning of David's exile, he flees to Achish. And remember, when he got there, the people recognized him. That Now, Gath was the city from which Goliath had come. David, of course, had slain Goliath and secured a great victory for Israel. 
David also, in fact, had Goliath's sword with him when he fled, right? Because Ahimelech had given him Goliath's sword. So David gets to Gath, and the people say, is this not David? Is this not the one who is going to be king in Israel? Is this not the great warrior? And David is terrified, you recall. So David feigns madness. He pretends to be insane. He starts drooling all over himself and scratching at the wall so that Achish will look at him and say, this guy's a crazy man. I don't want this guy anywhere near me. And got him out of the city. We even preached on the psalm that David wrote following that as he considered his deliverance from the Lord. We'll preach on several more psalms coming up in January that are based on First Samuel, the events of 1 Samuel. But this is the, the same Achish that, that David interacted with on that day. This time, however, it's a little bit different. David's not coming fearful. And there's probably a good practical reason why David's not afraid this time. Last time, David came with the sword of Goliath and himself. This time, David comes with a small army. He's got 600 men and their families with him. He has a small army at his disposal. As a matter of fact, his standing army might be bigger than Achish's standing army. And so David's not really worried about himself this time. He comes to Achish and he asks if he can dwell with Achish in Gath. And um, certainly Achish allows him to do so. Uh, There's no doubt a peace treaty here. No doubt uh, David is going to be paying some sort of tribute to the king to be allowed to stay there. Uh, It might be a monetary tribute or it might simply be the fact that Achish now has 600 more men, uh, military men, ready to defend his city. So either way, it's a good deal for Achish as long as David is going to behave. Achish is in good shape here. And wouldn't you know it, as far as it goes, David's plan works. We read this in verse 4. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath and he sought no, sought no more again for him. So David uh, is delivered. Saul is no longer seeking him because he knows that David is in Gath. No doubt he has spies ready to, to keep an eye out in case David were to return to Israel. But, but as far as it's concerned, as long as he's in the land of the Philistines, Saul is not going to chase him any longer. So problem solved, right? But at what cost? At what cost? Look with me in verses 5 through 7. And David said unto Achish, If I have now found grace in thine eyes, then uh, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? Then Achish gave him Ziklag that day, wherefore Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. So David one day asks Achish, and and he's been there. We don't know how long he's been there. We know the total time that he was in the land of the Philistines was was a year and four months. But he asks Achish for a city of his own. Uh, The request is, is driven by ulterior motives quite clearly, but it's actually not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea from a practical standpoint. David has 600 men with him and their families. If you uh, assume families of four, that would be a good 2,400 people that David was carrying with him uh, around the, the country and then he had with him in the city. Uh, that's going to dramatically change the dynamics of your city to have an extra 2,400 people. And that's if they're families of four. Most likely, there were quite a bit bigger families than just two kids your uh, American nuclear family. So we're talking somewhere around two to 4,000 people in Gath directly associated with David alone. And David says, why should me and uh, this people um, who are but servants of the king live in the royal city? He's, in, in, in many ways here, he's, he's um, flattering the king. You're the king. We don't deserve to live with you in the royal city. Give us a place of our own. But David has other reasons for this as well. So Achish gives David the city of Ziklag, and it becomes his city, literally his city. And the text tells us that for the remainder of the monarchy, Ziklag would become a royal city, and not a royal city in, the, in Philistia to the Philistines, but it would end up going with David into Israel and the nation of Israel, and it would become a royal city in Israel. But notice the last phrase there in verse 7. You've got it highlighted there. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. Sixteen months living in the land of the Philistines, separated from Israel, separated from God's people, separated from the tabernacle where God is worshipped. 
Now, we in the Western world have a, have a rich history of being very independence-minded. While many of us love our country, a bedrock principle of that love is that we are tirelessly opposed to our culture and our government demanding our loyalty. It's just a part of what we are as Americans. It's, 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 it's baked into us. But such was not the case in Israel. To be denied the national privileges of worship in the temple was to be denied the covenant blessings of God. To be unable to be a part of the nation was to be unable to be a part of God's grander plan for the world through Israel. This was a really big deal. This is why David cursed those men who were separating him from his nation in 1 Samuel 26. Well, let's make this very clear. In this case, it was not Saul who was separating David from Israel. It was David who was separating David from Israel. But not only did David's choices lead him away from Israel, but they also led him into a lifestyle of lies. And this lifestyle of lies would have, apart from the grace of God, completely destroyed David's ability to be the king in Israel. We'll talk more about how God spared David in chapters 28 and 29 over the next several weeks. But notice the situation that David finds himself in. We'll read verses 8 through 11. And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive and took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel and returned and came to Achish. And Achish said, Whither have ye made a road today? And David said against the south of Judah and against the south of the uh, Jeramaelites and against the south of the Kenites. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, Lest they should tell on us, saying, So did David, and so will be his manner all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines. David spent his time for this 16 months on campaigns against the nations which surrounded the, the nation of Israel and the nations of the Philistines. And he destroyed them, collected their goods, and at the same time he strengthened both Israel's position and really the Philistines' position in the region. But an important part of David's plan was that he had to kill everyone. No survivors. And then take the spoils. And he had to do this because he was lying to Achish about where he was going. All this time he's telling Achish that he's destroying Israelitish settlements when in fact he's destroying the Canaanite settlements. He is in a, in a, a state of continual lies and he has to prop up those lies by making sure there's no witnesses to those lies. And unfortunately what this means is that David had to become a brutally bloody man. One that perhaps he otherwise did not need to be. He had to kill not just the men, but the women and the children so that there would be no witnesses to his actions, so that he could prop up his lies. And as I was studying this, we've talked before about why David was not allowed to build the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that he was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man associated with war and he was a bloody man. Whereas Solomon would be a man of peace and God wanted his temple to be associated with peace. And I wonder if these events were not the tipping point of God saying, no, you have been beyond war bloody. You have had to kill people simply to keep their mouths shut to prop up your lies. I will not have my temple associated with that blood. I don't know if that's the blood. But this demonstrates an unfortunate side effect of David's lies. Having to prop up those lies with the blood of the innocent. So David would take these goods and he would probably give some of them to Achish. The king of Gath is a sort of tribute. And Achish says, where have you been? What have you been doing? Where did you get this stuff from? And David outright lies. He tells Achish that he had been raiding the south of Judah and the Jeremiahites and the Kenites. The Judites were obviously the Jews. Uh, the Kenites were the people of Moses' father-in-law, if you remember. 
They had come out with Israel at the time of the Exodus and followed them, joined them in their blessings, and made a home with them in Canaan. And the Jeramaelites were descendants of a man named Jeramael, who was a son of Hezron, who was a son of Perez, who was a son of Judah. And so he was also a Judite. They were children of Judah. They were children of Israel. Now, once again, we see David forming a foundation of lies. He says, I'm killing Israel, Jews, when in fact, he's not. But Achish is seeing this, and as David is having to prop up these lies, he's going to put himself in a very ugly situation. For we'll find in the next chapter that the Philistines are going to go to war with Israel. And Achish feels like he's got David in his grasp here. We'll see that at the end of this chapter. And what's Achish going to do? I mean, he assumes David's been killing Israelites for a year now. So he's going to say, hey, David, why don't you come with us? Why don't you fight this war against Israel? And David's going to be in a pretty tough spot. And the question is, did David really need to lie? Like we think of with Ahimelech. When he went to Ahimelech and he lied about, about being on, a, on a, a mission for Saul instead of fleeing from Saul for his life, he removed from Ahimelech the capacity to, to make his own choice, knowing the facts. Did he have to lie there? Could he not have trusted God that if he told the truth, God would have worked in the heart of Ahimelech? Did David have to lie here to Achish? Did he have to say, I'm killing Jews? I'm killing Israelites. Could he not have simply said, I'm destroying the other nations around about us? And in order to maintain this lie, he had to become a bloody man. Killing not just the armies of God's enemies, but leaving none to tell of David's deception. It would seem, however, once again, David's scheme of deception is successful to to an extent. Verse 12 tells us, And Achish believed David, saying, He hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore he shall be my servant forever. I've got him because now he's made his own people to hate him because he's been killing his own people. Achish thinks. And in a manner of speaking, because David has to prop up this lie, it's true. Achish has got him right where he wants him. The scriptures reveal faith not just as a point, but as a spectrum. Faith is not simply something you have or don't have. It's something that you gain, and it's something which grows over time. Now, as I say this, let me clarify what I don't mean by this. When I speak of faith being a spectrum, I don't mean that salvation is a process. Salvation is a one-time, permanent transaction that takes place the moment a person places their full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be their exclusive hope for the payment of their sins and their righteous qualification for access to God the Father. Salvation is by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I'm not saying that, that salvation is a process of faith. A person may get saved through a process, right? A process whereby he comes under conviction. He wrestles with the truths of God's word. Uh, He explores other truth claims. But make no mistake, salvation itself is a point in time when the heart of a man humbles himself before the truth of God's word, before the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, when I speak of faith being a, a, a dynamic, I do not mean that the amount of faith a person has is absolute. That some people have a tank this big, some people have a tank that big, and they're just stuck with the tank that they've got. And even if you maximized your faith, you'd, you'd be stuck with a little bit of faith if you had a little, a little tank. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that implies that faith operates exclusively from man's will. That I can have more faith than you can have. That God has somehow given me a, a greater capacity. Now, there is a spiritual gift of faith that we've studied before. And those people that have the spiritual gift of faith have a divine capacity to faith that God has gifted them with. But but as far as uh, the amount of faith, it's not like we all have different tank sizes. Uh, There's nothing in the Bible that seems to imply that or that you cannot gain more faith and you cannot yield faith that you've already had. So, So what I mean to say when I say that faith is dynamic or that faith is a spectrum is that we as believers all have different amounts of faith and more or lesser in different areas of our lives. 
Some of us have developed a great personal faith in certain areas of our lives, while others of us struggle in those areas. Some of us have a, a great deal of personal faith uh, financially, whereas others of us, that, that's a real battle. Some of us have, have great personal faith with our health, while others of us, it's a battle. We have to learn that. Some of us have a great personal faith with material things, while others have to learn that. And, and we're all at different points in our faith. Some of the faith struggles that you may have had over the last year might now be victories. I was talking to Nelson on, on a Friday night. We were talking about um, one of the faith struggles I had been going through in the past six months. And the Lord had to bring me through it, an area where I had realized I was not yielded. And I had to realize it through becoming anxious and not having the faith that I needed to have. And then finally the Lord making it clear to me, you need to trust me in this area. And learning how to trust God in an area where I had had a blind spot before. That's what I'm speaking of here. That's what I mean. Faith begins when we place our eternity in the hands of God through Christ. But then it must grow. And with each of us it grows differently. It grows at different rates and it grows in different ways. And the danger of this is that we can become content in areas of our lives where we lack faith. Another danger of this, as the sermon title implies, is that we can compartmentalize our faith. We can trust God with certain elements of our lives while completely not trusting God in other areas. We can say, I trust God here, but in this area, it's mine. It's my problem. I'm going to deal with it. God, I don't trust you enough to give that area to you. I'm going to keep that one to myself because I think I can do pretty well here. Usually we compartmentalize our faith in areas of strengths. God, I'm, I'm a good financial manager, so I don't, I don't really need you there. Or God, I've got my, my job. I'm really good at what I do, so I don't really need you there. God, my children are, are, are doing well, so I don't really need you there. God, we've got such good medical treatments today. I, I'm, I'm okay in that area. And so we tend to compartmentalize our faith in areas where we feel strong. Until God has to reveal to us that really there's no area where we're strong. It's only areas where he's been a little bit more gracious to us. David was able to trust God with his own life, but it seemed, with, with Saul's life, excuse me, but it seems as though he had trouble trusting God with his own. He trusted God for a duration of time, but he hit a breaking point where his faith faltered. He was willing to trust God in Gath, but he wasn't willing to trust God that God could work if he told the truth to Achish about what he was doing. Just like he was willing before to trust God to flee from Saul, but he wasn't willing to trust God enough to tell the truth to Ahimelech and to allow God to work in the life of Ahimelech to help him out in, uh, earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. So we find in David's life this, these walls of faith. And this doesn't make him a bad man. In fact, we know he wasn't. He was a man of incredible faith and integrity and love for God, and God was going to use him greatly. But we are watching. We have the privilege of seeing David's faith grow, and not always through just learning. Sometimes it's had to grow through negative experiences. And it's an opportunity to learn our, uh, for, for ourselves as well. This is one of David's most valuable contributions to the scriptures. David was a man who wore his emotions right out on his shirt sleeves. He wasn't hiding them. We know more about David emotionally and spiritually than we know about any other man in the entire Bible. We, we have his poetry. We have the, through the Psalms. We, we have a great portion of narrative devoted to his life. We know a great deal about David. And we, by virtue of knowing a great deal about David, we don't just know about his strengths, but we see a great deal more about his weaknesses. And so we're able to open up our own hearts through the experiences that we read of in David's life and thus to assess our lives through the lens of David's thoughts, actions, and personal struggles. A life of faith is by nature not a life of ease. Faith asks us 
to yield the comfort and security of that which is tangible, that which we can feel and touch and see, for the promise of that which is not. Faith asks us to follow the expectation of God above the perceptions of our own minds, the perception of our own fingers, of our own senses. But the testimony of God's Word is that to whatever degree we're willing to follow a life of faith, we will find on the other end of that faith tremendous blessing. Hebrews chapter 11 is uh, what many people call the hall of faith. And in the first verse of Hebrews 11, we find a definition of faith. Hebrews 11 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not blind. I've heard that concept of blind faith. Faith is not blind. Faith is the substantive and definitive action that we take on the basis of our trust in God and in His Word. Faith is the tangible evidence that the unseen is no less real than the seen, than that which we do see. Faith is seeing the evidence of the unseen. And throughout Hebrews 11, we find the accounts of men and of women who exercised faith and found through their faith tremendous spiritual success. And after the teachings of of Hebrews 11, following that in Hebrews chapter 12, we find God's conclusions about the opportunity that we have, each of us, to live a life of faith. And this is a choice. We, we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by faith, and then the rest of our lives we have the privilege of living by faith. And it is this conclusion in Hebrews chapter 12 that I'd like to make the thrust of our application this morning. And the first lesson I would like for us to consider is this. Faith is a battle we all fight. Faith is a battle that we all fight. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 tells us this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The Bible tells us that we have a great cloud of witnesses. Now, as it's speaking of this great cloud of witnesses, it is actually speaking of the men and the women who have gone before us, who have lived a life of faith, and who have finished that life of faith. They've gone before us in this faith battle and now the scriptures tell us that that this battle, that, that faith has been passed along to us. It is our privilege and our responsibility to carry the torch. Faith is not the easy path, but it is the blessed path. If you were to familiarize yourself with the men and the women in Hebrews 11, you would find in those verses those who had been tested in various ways. Some of them had been tested in battle. Some of them had been tested in the home. Some of them as leaders. Some of them as followers. Some of them had finished their course uh, in a a peaceful way. Others of them were martyred and destroyed for their faith. But the common theme among all those who had victorious faith is that they were all tested in that faith. As a believer, your faith will be tested It is not for us to know how that testing will come about, how God will test our faith, but He will. It is for us to know why this testing comes about. The Bible doesn't tell us how, but the Bible does tell us why. And as we consider why, consider with me 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Peter tells us, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. As God describes our faith, He says it is more precious than of gold that perishes, more precious than the material things of this world, But he also likens our faith to one of those material things, and that material thing is gold. When you talk about gold, uh, you talk about its purity in in terms of carats. There's 14 carat gold, 
and there's 24 karat gold, and the 14 karat gold is of less purity than the 24 karat gold. And the difference is in the process. The process by which they purify it, and as you consider the process of purifying metals, it's a process of melting them down, and it's a process of removing the purifications, and then of forming it again. Heating, melting, flame is what purifies metal. In much the same way, the Bible tells us that God allows trials and tribulations in our lives in order to purify our faith, to grow it, to make it better, to strengthen it. And the point of this process is that we might be better found unto God's praise and honor and glory at His return. So faith is a battle, and it's a battle we all must fight. And it's, it's, it's a battle that we, we want to fight because we want to grow. Secondly, faith is a battle forged by the one who loves you best. And this is important for us to remember. As David was fighting this battle of faith, as he was running from Saul, the thing that he needed to keep before his mind is that God loves him and that God is in control. Remember what we read in Psalm 42 at the beginning? David writing at the time where he is finally king, at the time where he's been given rest from his enemies, and he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou discomforted within me? Hope thou in God. Have your, and that word biblical hope there, not meaning a, a, a fearful longing, but a joyous expectation. Have your fullest expectation in God. Trust in God. Trust that He has your best interest in mind. Trust that as you align yourself with God's will, He is doing something. Trust that when the hard times come, God will see you through them as He has promised He will do. So faith is a battle that's forged by the one that loves you best. In Hebrews chapter 12, coming back to that in verses 2 and 3, we read this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest ye be wearied, he says, and faint in your own minds. Jesus Christ is called here both the author of our faith and the finisher of our faith. That it is Jesus upon whom our faith rests, for our life of faith begins the day that we believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be reconciled unto God. But it is also in Jesus that our faith will be finished, that it will be made complete. Our life of faith ends the day Jesus returns for us or the day that he takes us home. And at that point, we won't need faith anymore. If faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, then faith gives way when the unseen becomes the real. The intangible will finally become tangible. The invisible will finally become visible. I believe that in a manner of speaking, this world, if, if you want to put it in these, these terms, this world is the dream and one day we will wake up in reality. Because eternity, the intangible, the invisible of now is far more real than anything that's around us, than, than the chairs you're sitting in. This, this, is, this is the material. This will burn. This is gone. The rest is eternal. And it will not pass away. Until that day, however, we follow the example of the author and the finisher of our faith who endured the very greatest of sufferings because for it he had been promised the very greatest of exaltation. The life of Christ was a life of faith. He was on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Lord, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus knew that the path of exaltation was a path of suffering, but he took the path of suffering because he trusted in the exaltation. He trusted that the end of his faith would be worth it. And it was. And he's the author and finisher of our faith. And to trust Christ is to trust that if we will place our faith in the unseen promises, it will be worth it. Jesus Christ is not only the object of our faith, He is the example of our faith. He loved you enough to die for you, and He it is who asks you to fight this battle of faith. 
So faith is a battle we all fight. Faith is a battle forged by the one who loves us best. Third, faith always gives more than it takes. Faith always gives more than it takes. Continuing in Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 6. Ye have not resisted, not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The readers are reminded in verse 4 that we have not died. We have not resisted sin all the way to blood. Some have in a manner of speaking, through martyrdom. But he says, if you're reading this, you haven't. You haven't died resisting sin. The sin nature which you contend against has not killed you. Much to the contrary, the situations which arise in our lives are there to test our faith, to stretch us, to bend us, but not to break us. Here Paul quotes from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which exhorts us not to despise the chastening of the Lord because the Lord... The Lord's chastening is a reflection of the Lord's love. The testing of our faith is a test of love. It's not hatred. God stretches us to make us better, not to destroy us. When a person goes to the weight room or if they're in rehab and they're lifting weights and they're, they're um, rehabilitating uh, muscles and joints, there's a painful process that you have to go through. If you've ever uh, had a, a busy day or, I don't know, I, I always felt really sore after coming back from a day of skiing or sometimes coming back from, from the weight room or whatever, that soreness is a soreness of you having literally torn your muscles to a degree. But it's that soreness that as the muscle rebuilds, it rebuilds bigger and stronger. The soreness tells you something is happening and though it's a painful process and a tiring process, it's a process that is making you stronger. A good parent disciplines his children in order to teach them how to live in the world. The discipline of a parent is not intended to, to reflect hatred to that child. In fact, it's the most loving thing a parent can do to discipline their children and to teach them what is right before they get out in the real world and are have, have to learn their lessons the hard way. A good teacher challenges his students to excel, pushes them beyond their comfort zones so that they will grow. A good coach asks more of his athletes than he knows they can give him so that they'll have goals with which to push their bodies. And a good God does not just let us sit around on the level of faith that we have, sitting on our spiritual couch, eating our spiritual potato chips, and getting spiritually lazy and fat. That's not what a good God does. A good God tries our faith. He pushes our faith. He gets us off the spiritual couch and He puts us on the spiritual treadmill so that we can become spiritual, spiritually strong men and women. And this is the legacy of faith. That when we successfully exercise our faith and overcome the world, the reward for doing so is great. Our faith is stronger. Our relationship with God is better. We become more usable for Christ's kingdom. And on top of all of that, Christ is glorified. Fourth and final point this morning. We've seen that faith is a battle we all must fight. Faith is a battle forged by the one that loves you best. Faith always gives more than it takes. Fourth and finally, you know, not every faith battle, however, is a victory. Not every faith battle is a victory. And this is an unfortunate reality of us being sinful. It doesn't have to be because the scriptures tell us in 2 Corinthians that God has never given us that which we cannot handle. He says there's no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. But just because God always gives us the way doesn't mean we will always take the way. 1 Samuel 27 teaches us of an instance where David didn't win that battle. He chose the easy path rather than the faith path. His faith failed and he fled to the, uh, out of the land of Israel into the land of the Philistines for 16 months. But you know what else we know about David as we kind of flip forward in First and Second Samuel? God didn't look at David and say, Oh, you lost that one, so that's it, I'm done with you. 
there are points where we can push God over the edge. But you know, many of these faith battles are battles that even if we don't outright win them, we learn from them. We grow from them. And God is not just willing, but God is very desirous to yet use us. God still had a plan for David. God still used David greatly. But David found himself in a place of discomfort, a place of unhappiness, as he yielded God's best on the altar of his own reasoning and convenience. And this failure was not without its casualties. We consider some of the difficulties that David and these men had to endure because he was outside of God's perfect will. But while this failure was not without its casualties, it also was not David's end. When we falter in our faith, there are consequences for doing so. The greater our spiritual responsibility, the greater these consequences are. Children, you have a much fewer consequences for failing in your faith than your parents do because your parents have greater responsibility. When your father fails in his faith, it doesn't just affect him, it affects his wife, it affects his children. When your pastor fails in his faith, depending on the avenue of faith, it may not just affect me or my wife or my children, it may affect my church. So the greater responsibility that God has given you, the greater possibility that your faith failings might have greater consequences. But we also can't allow a lapse in our faith or in our judgment to define us spiritually. Rather, we take those failures and we learn from them, we grow from them, we understand what we can do differently the next time around. For 16 months, David operated under the fruit of a faithless decision. And while we cannot know what blessings David might have had, what blessings he forfeited by stepping outside of the land that God wanted him to dwell in, we do know that God still had a great plan for him, plan for his best good, and that he does so for us as well. But that as we lay aside the weights, as we run with patience this race that is set before us, we find the greatest capacity not just for God's glory, but also for our best good. Let's close in prayer.